I keep thinking, Gary, that we should probably use the Allman Brothers song, you know, Ramblin' Man, as our theme song. Because I guess we talk about that years ago. Well, we certainly talked about. Well, we, I, I played around once without using "Ramble On" by Led Zeppelin, but probably "Ramblin' Man" would probably suit as well as anything else. And we probably need a nod to Amelia because you know, she spent that time trying to put together a theme song for us, and oh, we just never act on anything, do we? And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel Six, it's Jonathan Strong and Garrett K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. And we're back. We're off to the races. We're halfway through. We're not halfway through anything, are we? No, we're about a uh-huh. quarter of the way through April, a third of the way through April. Um, you weren't very good well, at maths we at have... school, were you? Pardon? You weren't very good at maths huh? at school, were you? Not yeah, fraction, right. fractions and percentages. Anyway, yes, we're back. We're here. We're thing. And... Well, we haven't we haven't just chatted with each other for a while now. We actually missed a couple of podcasts, for which we apologize to our, I'm sure, heartbroken listeners or non-listeners in the case of those. But I was off at ICFA for a week. Um, we had um, a lovely discussion with Lavi Tidhar last week, and we've missed a fair amount of news during the amount of time that things went off. I did. I, I want to thank everybody who was at ICFA for joining this wonderful surprise party that. Uh, that Stacey Haynes organized for me because that was really nice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then I came back here to grade papers and go to meetings and hunt for a provost and do really horrible things. So I've been in a bad mood at my day job. Well, I'm always in a bad mood at my day job, Gary, so I really wouldn't, you know, I don't, well, don't know okay. what to say to that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess stuff has been happening in science fiction. The world has continued on. I'm far from convinced that anybody's waiting for us to weigh in. So I think that's okay. And yeah, I think we missed three or four episodes in there, so about a month we were we were quiet for. But that's okay. That that happens at sea. I mean, this is, after all, as our listeners know, a informal, peripatetic affair produced gratis out of love, and it does mean every now and again we got to do other things. I think we need to remind people of our rambling nature. After all, we began uh, with completely pointless, random conversations. We began recording them. We began trying to organize points and make sense. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. That's right. Um, we do have things, to, we can, have things we can talk about. There, there's, there's a new set of awards announced since last we spoke. Um, I've got to tell you, I'm not sure that, that I'm part. Yeah, yeah, the Dragon Con have announced the Dragon Awards. I am not sure I'm part of yeah. the mainstream school of thought on this, Gary. And what is the mainstream school of thought on it? I, I don't know. I mean, I assume that it's sort of interest, uh, amusement. I mean, uh, science fiction, in my opinion, has long since punched through the level of peak award. We, you know, we have an award for everything. I'm halfway convinced we should start issuing writers with a chit. You know, it's like once if you get a professional publication in the year, you get a chit, and you can only be nominated once for one award. Everybody gets a turn. That's how it goes. Pretty much like. Girls middle school volleyball. I've no, I, I wouldn't even say that. Probably any middle school sport without any gender specific stuff. But I would yeah. say, or in fact, probably a lot more like kindergarten kids doing a coloring in competition. Uh, so yes, yeah, so it could be like, well, okay, you got a Nebula nomination this year. You can't be nominated for anything else. Sorry. That's just how it goes. Uh, and that way you could sort of spread it out because there's so many things to be nominated for. And we've had a lot of awards. I mean, there's probably half a dozen sets of awards, nominations, and wins that have come out since our last last time we've talked. The Tip Trees came and went. The Stokers came and went. The Bright British right. Science Fiction Awards came and went. Congratulations to everybody and all those things. I'm not going to go through them, but they went through. My feeling about the Dragon Awards themselves is, um, oh, yeah. That's almost my, the entirety of my well, reaction is, oh, yeah. I, I I I don't have a great deal of interest. I have curiosity. One thing, it's a completely open award. It doesn't have any conditions on it at all. The Locus Awards, as we know, give extra weight to local subscribers. The Hugo Awards, you have to be a member. The Nebulas, you have to be a member uh, of SFWA. Here's a here's a People's Choice Award, and it's an award that comes in many different categories and many different flavors and many different sizes. So it looks to me like an award ceremony designed to make everybody a little bit happy. If you not feel like you've been no, left out, that's not true. That, that's a silly thing. No, no, silly, silly, Gary. 
That's not silly at all. If okay. you, how if how you is this in every size, been... Gary? You, 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 if you write a novel, you can be nominated. If you make a comic book, you can be nominated. If you make a TV or movie thing, you can be nominated. And if you make a game thing, you can be nominated, right? So that's all of short <laughs> fiction is out. All of non-fiction short is fiction out. Is... This is fine. Mm -hmm. There's no problem with it. But it's like to say that everybody's going to have a bit of a, bit of a, a swirl around. Nah, not at all. It, it has its own structural nature, and that is, it's it's it appears that its focus is more commercially oriented work. Not not by necessarily, but it appears that way. Particularly, I mean, there's been a long argument around the Hugo's because of our. Friends who are in, living in tax, tax exile in Italy, that um, uh. that you know, you know, sort of things aren't sort of commercial enough. You know, that we don't focus enough on commercial fiction, and everything else at the Hugo's, and that's a whole separate discussion. But it appears to me that this is an an overt desire to in, in, incorporate, recognize that, and hey, knock them, knock them dead. That's great. I'm happy for them. I did sit there and I looked at the at the ballot and considered nominating for it and went. No, I don't think I will. I, I didn't even think about nominating for it. Now that you mention it, I mean, well, why not? It, it, I mean, I mean let's ask, let, let's touch that for a second. Why not? Why wouldn't you nominate? Let's be let's be controversial, Gary. <laughs> um, why wouldn't you nominate? My feeling is, I just nominated for like six sets of awards in the last two months, and I don't particularly feel like trying to. Split hairs between my science fiction novel that I like, my YN novel, my military SF or fantasy novel, or my alternate history novel, or my apocalyptic novel. I'm just as happy just not doing that. And I have no, I've never been to Dragon Con, so I've got no particular connection to that. That, that well, that's event, part of so. the point I was making. I've got a friend who's a member of the Romance Writers of America that has lots and lots of categories. Uh, very interesting categories. Things with strong romantic elements and paranormal things with. Novels with trees in them get a special category, I think. And this sort of thing uh, doesn't interest me because I don't. It, it looks like it's designed uh, to make people feel good by having a vote for the kind of thing they like. I've finally come to the conclusion that I don't like all science fiction. I don't like all science, all fantasy. Uh, I have a specific kind of um, taste, frankly, and I nominate things that reflect my taste. I don't expect them to reflect everybody else's taste. It looked to me like the Dragon Con categories were an attempt for everybody to feel like they had a voice in their little corner of the world. And more power to them. Maybe. I mean, actually, you know what? L listening to you, and I'm not being critical, and trying to listen to myself, I'm being kind of a bit of an elitist twat about this. Um, if um, I don't like what's been done to the Hugo Awards over the last few years particularly, and I don't for various reasons, should I be taking the attitude I'm taking towards the Dragon Awards? Maybe I will. In fact, no, I will. I will nominate. I'm going to nominate for the Dragon Awards. I might even publish them on my blog or something, my, my ballot. Because why not take hmm. part? I mean, I always say to people they should uh, take part in um, the Hugos, and it doesn't matter what you don't have an opinion on. I certainly, and this is not a critical thing, I don't game at all, and I never have in my life. The, last, the only thing I've played as a game probably in the last 20 years is Trivial Pursuit. So I've got no opinion on the four game categories, though there's nothing wrong with them existing. No, I don't either. But I will sit there, I guess, and I'll try and work out whether I think that, you know, Aurora is a science fiction, fiction novel, or a military science fiction, or even an alternate history novel, none of which, those, you know, it's a science fiction novel, uh, or where... Paolo Bacicola, or what about Europe in winter? Where does that sit? So I'll sit there and I'll work that out, and I'll, I will put my nominations together. I don't know that I can come up with enough to fill a ballot, but as I keep saying to other people, you know, and, and you've got to be reasonable about this, I, mean, I keep saying to other people that, you know, you should nominate. It doesn't matter whether you can nominate for everything. I'll nominate. You're going to nominate? Give it a go. Yeah, that's a reasonable attitude, I suppose. Uh, I, I The thing is that if to get back to the specific preferences I have in science fiction, I usually don't see things I nominate winning awards. Uh, I sometimes make the nomination because I want to call attention to somebody, hope they'll get on the ballot, hope they'll be paid attention to. Uh, but by and large, I don't think I could organize any kind of a vote to say, let's, let's, let's all go for Aurora this year. Let's all, 
let's all give a Hugo to, to John Crowley for his next novel, whatever it is, because he's deserved it for a long time. I'm not that well organized. I'm not um, that well organized or that I, interested. You know, I mean, my, my own take on that one is I generally have something I'd like to see win, and I nominate it, and then I hope that it works out. Eh, but the same thing could be said for any literary award or any – people people complain that we talk about the awards too much on this podcast, which we do, but most of what we seem to be doing is complaining about them <laughs> and their meaninglessness and their pointlessness. Oh, look, but, look they're funny. I, mean, like I had this conversation with a friend of mine. I used to be very interested in the, the backroom gossip behind awards, and I find that I've lost all interest in backroom gossip. I am still interested in – who wins, and I enjoy the process of being nominated for an award. I think that it's, yeah, it's an enjoyable thing. But mm -hmm. I wouldn't go much beyond that, you know. So, you know, yay, the, 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 um, the Dragon Con Awards, and I hope they go well. Um, I'm looking at the Aurora nominees. They all look great. They're on the Locust website if you want to go there or on Tor.com or any uh -huh. other news services. They were, you know, sort of a week or so ago. Uh, I'm very, very, very happy, by the way, to see how well Kelly Robson is got, uh, be, you know, going on all these various awards at the moment. Uh, she, they just put out the, uh, the Sturgeon Awards in the last few days. This, their, their, their long list. And that looks well, now this is very exciting. This is something I find. I find long lists useful for. I find the long list uh, for the Tiptree Award useful. And uh, and you mentioned the Sturgeon Award, and I find the Campbell Award, because apart from looking at year's best anthologies, such as yours or Gardner's, this is where I learn about new writers who are doing significant amounts of new work, mm -hmm. uh, and significant enough to draw the attention of people. So when you mention a Kelly Robeson, for example, who's not that new a writer, but nevertheless. Oh, she um, is. She's only been around for like two years. Okay, that's pretty new. Um, but I'll see an occasional story in an anthology. When I see her name on a ballad like this, that tells me there's more than that story. There's something going on with this writer who's interesting. Mm -hmm. And outside of people that, that you recommend to me, names that you mention as, as somebody that's having a good year, a, a, a Kelly Robeson or, 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 a, or a Sam Miller, I don't have the capacity to keep up with the short fiction the way you do. So outside of year's best anthologies, these award nominations introduced me to new writers. I was delighted to see uh, um, uh, Usman on, on, on this year's Nebula Ballad, for example. Um, uh, even though I, I've known him for a couple of years, I hadn't read that much of his fiction, and now I find myself reading more of it. So I think that the awards in these categories are very useful for bringing attention to writers that some of us might not otherwise encounter easily. Oh, sure. And that's always been the mechanism, I think. It's just become more valuable over time. The danger with the mechanism is if it becomes an echo chamber and everybody just says the same names back and forth, back and forth, and it has no mechanism to open up uh, and allow other people into that dialogue to be talked about and promoted. Um, you could argue that the value of a Dragon Awards coming along the value of any new mm -hmm. set of awards coming along uh, is that it covers a different area of the field and allows different names to be talked about. I mean, we don't need, in a sense, to be told that Gene Wolfe is still terrific because he's mm -hmm. Gene Wolfe, like we've had a long time. Uh, my, own per my own personal pick for best science fiction novel of 2015, I don't mind saying, is Aurora by Stan Robinson. But, I mean, Stan's been around for a long time. Everybody's used to the idea that Stan's great. So it is good to have a mech you know, mech things that, that broaden out those things. I think that things like the Galactic Spectrum Awards, things like the Tiptrees, uh -huh. um, the Carl Brandons, I think, is it? Uh, there's just a whole, the say, even the things like the Sayuns and the Auroras and the, all these other awards. And there's lots and lots I could go through, like a bunch. There's no point. I'm not omitting any. I just happen not to mention them. Is that those shortlists, right? They do give you an idea. And it hopefully will overcome, well, help balance some of the issues in terms of getting things attention i mean like i don't think the dave hutchison europe series has really got a lot of play in the united states which is unfortunate. not at all not at all which is unfortunate because it's terrific stuff and hopefully you know it getting nominated and winning or we're getting nominated for bsfas and clark awards and all these kind of things showing up on the locust recommended reading list showing up wherever else it may be all that helps to okay, contribute this, towards a dialogue it, for that and this is one area one area why i agree with you if you have 
uh, writers who and and and, and the uh, the Hutchinson is a good example. Uh, but there are especially uh, in the states these days writers that we simply don't see. Um, you know, we don't see much of Simon Ings. We don't see much of Paul McCauley these days. Uh, and bringing attention to very good writers who are very actively working in the UK and who are frankly becoming less and less visible in the States, that's where awards might have something useful to say. But the problem is, if people can't see the books, if they can't get hold of the books, they can't nominate them for awards. This is probably also the value of the popular versus the juried award. Uh, you know, the popular oh, yeah, award actually does acclaim the most popular stuff, and that's a good, good thing. Nothing wrong with that at all. The juried award yep. allows a group of people to say, well, hang on, we also looked at other stuff you might not have heard of, and have a look at that. I think it's good to have a balance of stuff. And Lord knows, you know, if you go to uh, sfadb.com, which I'm sure you do all the time, Gary. I know I do. I do all the time. Uh, this is Mark Kelly's uh, Science Fiction Awards database website. There are, I, th- I think a plethora is not a, you know, an overstatement of active awards. Yeah. What would know, be really interesting, actually? Well, okay, not really interesting. It would be a little interesting. Is if at the end of a, you know, a year, someone published a tally... You, know, you work out some weighted index and work out the awards uh-huh. awards winner. You know, you turn around and say, well, you know, if you're nominated for Hugo, that's worth five points and Nebula's worth five points and the tip tree, whatever they're all, however many points. And then you tally it all up and you say, oh, look, based on that, this is how, how, how people did. And what, 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 what does the conclusion you draw from that sort of thing? What, you mean if you Bad, actually did that tally? averages? Well, actually, okay. Almost like that, yes. It's almost like baseball statistics, Gary. Uh, I think what it might do is just highlight different work. Work that people think is interesting and worthwhile. I mean, this is what it's all about. I mean, there's no absolute uh, absolute statement of quality. There's nothing that's actually right or wrong about this. There's a whole bunch of work being published. There's so much that there's no way to find your way around it. These are all tools to find your way around it. Um. Anyway. I mean, look, I'd like to tell anyway. you that there's something contra- controversial about Dragon Con- the Dragon Awards, but I don't think there is. I don't see it. Whilst I, I see them answering some of the questions raised by the um, by, by the mad Italian, Italian tax exile segment of their community, um, <laughs> I don't think they're specifically built by that segment, segment of the community. For that segment of the community, they just help address the concerns, just as the equally valuable and interesting Bain Awards that happened, uh, you know, this you know, they're happening, do that as well, you know? So you I, know, I, I'm, I'm not unhappy about it, Gar. The, 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 the only kind of um, final parenthetical statement, and this is something, one of these things I'm always curious about here in the States is the People's Choice Awards, and I cannot bring myself to watch them because they strike me as being, well, unwatchable. But the names of the awards are not the best this and the best that. The names of the awards are favorite female rap artist, favorite TV program, favorite movie. That's fine if they want. It's 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 basically a popular vote on who's the favorite of 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 the month or of the That's week fine. or of the year. What's wrong with that? And if science fiction wants to do that, it's perfectly fine. I think didn't didn't Lucas is, basically do that, Gary, a couple of times? Well, it, 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 Locus partly does that, but you have to know about the Locus Awards. Yeah, I, I mean, mean I, th- I thought we actually had a category at one point. You know, there's been one or two, like, all-time ones, you know, favorite science fiction novel of all time or something. I was, but I think it was called Best Science Fiction Series okay. of All Time, and it was, you know, the Foundation Series, as I recall. Uh, no, that was a Hugo. I, 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 the, thing, the thing I like about that is that as egregious as the program may be, it uses the word favorite instead of the word best. Mm-hmm. And best is a judgment which, in a given year, is probably not much different from the word favorite. I do wonder um, how different the results of your awards would be when you're popularly polling if you tra- if you transpose those words. You know, like if you were to say, take as an example, not to aim it at them, but as an example, the the newly announced Dragon Awards, and you changed all of the category titles from best to favorite. Would you get different results? I don't know. I think it'd be very interesting. I think you have uh, there's there's a there's a kind of acknowledgement of fanish enthusiasm when you use the word favorite. And well, the, favorite the, seems to me to be 
an emotional choice rather than an intellectual choice. I'm not saying that it's necessarily a better term. But the fact is that apart from the tax exile group that you talk about, there are huge swaths of readerships and viewerships in science fiction and fantasy that probably feel themselves unheard during the usual award cycle. Well, I think there's both that, and I think that's absolutely true. So they absolutely feel they're unheard. I think they're also, and this is where the favorite thing actually has a po- an upside. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's a group who, who lack the, they either lack the confidence or arrogance, perhaps to be fair, uh, the, to just say, I'm going to pick the best of something. You know, they don't, you know, they're uncomfortable with that itself. They're going, well, I'm, who am I to pick the best of this or the best of that? I haven't read everything. But if you say, well, what was your favorite yeah. newly published book of 2015? They go, oh, my favorite book was David Weber's, you know, latest Honor Harrington book. And you go, mm-hmm. well, fair enough. Vote for that. And I think in the Hugo context and whatever else where it is phrased as best, maybe a chunk of people are uncomfortable with that. And that's perfectly fair. Isn't, but it, it, what you just said is exactly what most of us say to somebody who's thinking about voting for the Hugos for the first time or voting for the Locus Awards. And they will say, I'm not qualified. And we say to them, choose your favorite of the things you did read. You don't have to read everything. Uh, and- the juried awards, the juried awards, you have an expectation that the jury will have read a fair amount of stuff. Uh, but even then, you don't expect them to read everything. Well, for most of the jury awards these days, in fairness, what you actually expect is that they've read what's been submitted. Um, you know, and that's that could be qu- that could be that. quite that could be quite limited. Mm. You know, I mean, I don't actually. Mean that- the juries I've been on, the juries I've been on, uh, the other jurors and myself have been fairly conscientious about trying to seek out books yeah. that are not. Sent to you by by whoever is. Sure. And I've been that too. But then, uh, on the other hand, I've just finished judging a set of awards that were pre- uh, presented a little while ago, and it is a thing where the, the, the juries aren't allowed to. You, the, things have to be submitted. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, that's the Aurealis Awards, right? They have to be submitted, hmm. and that's just how they are. It's not a flaw. It's not a feature. It's just how they are. And I kind of sit there and I go, well, okay. Well, if that's that case, what about? Yeah, you know, anything else. So, you know, I don't know. Look, it's, it's, it's interesting, Gar. And we will sit back and, I mean, we're, we're about to move into interesting territory anyway in this awards thing. I mean, uh, you, you couldn't say that the nebulas are disinterest, uninteresting. Um, but certainly we should, the Hugo Awards are what, uh, two and a half weeks away or something? Yeah, it's, it's getting, yeah. It's getting the 20, close. 26th of yeah. April that they're, they're supposed to be on. So that will be interesting. To see what what gets up. No, it, it 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 will be interesting, but it uh, I, I think what everything is is reinforcing is an idea which uh, which we want to get into the second part of our discussion, which which deals with anthologies. How do you represent science fiction in the modern world? Uh, and awards can't do that anymore. There is not one science fiction. There is not uh, if you look at the list of. Uh, books which will or will not be nominated for Hugo's in a couple of weeks, you're always comparing apples and rutabagas. You're, you're, you're comparing novels that aren't trying to do anywhere close to the same sort of thing. Um, and you're dealing with, with science fiction and with fantasy and with odd in-between awards, like, let's say, the Shirley Jackson Awards. You're dealing with writers these days like Helen Marshall and Rob Sherman who and Kelly Link, who don't really, where do they fit? Um, world fantasy kind of covers everything as long as it isn't science fiction. Um, you, my, my point is you cannot compare these writers with, with I don't know, Clifford Semak. Uh, I don't know. I, I, think there's it, not... I think if you keep within a chronological period and then compare chronological period to chronological period, there's always been this kind of pattern. I mean, Shirley Jackson occupies a similar position, maybe too. Kelly Link does today. You know, yeah. and you're right. You can't particularly compare you know, Clifford Simak to Shirley Jackson or to Kelly Link, but I mean, there's an awful lot of people you can compare him to. Well, that's true. There are, but the, the the fact is, you can't identify those people by a simple genre definition anymore. No, well, the problem with genre. 
backwards. I don't know, Gary. Uh, Sometimes it all gets a bit too too clever, frankly. I think you can just fine if you want to. It's just people sit around trying to ju- justify stuff too much. They run around, they they, they, okay. they they pretend that speculative fiction is a thing when it's science fiction, and then they turn around and they go, oh, we're, gen- we're, we're genre blending, and you go, oh, they've never done that before. You know, it's like, it's not, everything's not old. There's all kinds of new interesting things and all that kind of thing. But the description, the, the discussion around it, as opposed to the work, that's kind of like, <sighs> really? I, I, I disagree. I find the discussions that these debates start are worth having. That's the most important part of the field anymore. I mean, to some extent, let's take, okay, let's, let's get into anthology. Are you tell, are you, no, 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 no. Are you telling me the, discu- the, the discussion in the nonfiction community is more important than the fiction? I did not say it was more important than the fiction. You kind of just did, I'm Gareth. saying maybe more important than the awards. Oh, look. The awards are fun, but they're not important at all. Uh, they, they're an interesting communications tool and nothing very much more, and you know it. And the, the nonfiction, the, the populist nonfiction is interesting, and by populist I mean read by more than six people. And then there's the academic nonfiction, which honestly I can't see being of any interest to the broad community at all. It's a bunch of people in a dark room talking to themselves to no real avail. Sorry. That's true of some of it, and true it, of some fiction okay. as well. Gary, Gary, name me a work of science fiction, nonfiction... Read by more than 500 people. Just 500? Read by more than 500 people? <laughs> Not published as a blog post on Tor.com or an article on io9 or, you know, somebody's blog post or whatever else. You know, uh, he's struggling. He's struggling. Bunch of no, people I mean, in a dark uh, room talk to themselves. If, 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 if you go back, there are books about science fiction. There are collections of essays about science fiction by Ursula Le Guin, by Margaret Atwood, uh, that have been no, read no, by no, big no, no, of the readership no, of those no, authors. No. Sorry, no. Now you're talking about sort of the slipstream edge case pieces written by people who already have a huge readership. Um, well, when, yeah. when it comes, to, which are not really part of the core academic discussion at all. The core academics, you know, discussion is one hand clapping in a dark room to itself with all due respect and affection. You know, a NICFA uh, academic program is lovely, but whoever heard of it, whoever pays any attention to it, you know, there are probably ongoing debates about, I don't know, the the symbolism of stakes in Buffy and uh, whether something happened in the 1960s fiction of Ursula Le Guin and... Uh, whether the symbolism of the dragons in the Neveriona sequence by Delaney actually mean yada, 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 blah. It's all nothing. No, it has no impact on the field, and it's not meant to have impact on the field, and people who study evolutionary biology are not trying to shape the future of evolutionary biology. They're trying to understand it. Okay. Fair enough. Astronomers are not trying to create stars. They're simply looking at them. Yeah, but someone's listening to astronomers, Gary. Ah, that's no, I mean, my it's, point. It's, I mean, it's, you're saying. I mean, it's, it's, I'm it's not saying it's without value. Many people, and we should we should we should get Chip Delaney to talk about this. I mean, there are some popular reference books and stuff, and they're they're great. But but my point is, if science fiction is worth reading, it's worth talking about, and if it's worth talking about, it's worth writing about. Maybe so. I mean, I wouldn't particularly argue against that. I mean, certainly and, when, and when the, the pre- when the practitioners do it, it's particularly interesting. And there are, yes, it's true, some genuinely interesting commentators. They mostly don't appear to be in the academic field. And when someone who's in the academic field is being interesting, it tends to be when they're talking outside of an academic context. But. Well, possibly. I mean, I don't think that it's reasonable, simply because they're well-known writers, I don't think it's reasonable to say that Delaney or Le Guin are excluded from the academic discourse. They've no, been, what I'm trying to say is the readership their work, attra- the work attracts well, isn't because it's academic. part of it for decades. Okay, we're talking over each other now. Okay. All I'm trying to say is that the interest that Le Guin and Delaney's and, and whichever other published writers' nonfiction gets, it's because of the interest in their fiction, and it's a, 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 a rollover the, the, you know, to that, or connected to that, that people actually read the other stuff. It's not a function of the interest in academic discussion of science fiction or fantasy. No, but my point about academic scholarship of any sort 
is that despite what goes on in universities now, there are websites where you can track the number of people who cite your essays, and sure. there are universities that your promotion is based on that. Historically, the size of your readership is not a measure of the effectiveness of your scholarship. Yeah. And there has been very useful scholarship done by, by scholars, some of whom, the, every, almost everything we know about Paul Leinbarger uh, now is the work of a scholar named yeah. Alan Elms, who's published bits and pieces of it. He hasn't done the big biography that I would love him to do. Uh, most of what we know about Tiptree comes from a biography which was written in a popular vein, but certainly was a scholarly biography by okay. Julie Phillips. That book is a weird outlier, Gary, I think. And whilst I mean, you, you, you could go around it, what you're talking about is a talented journalist writing an interesting book about an extraordinary story that happens to fall into science fiction. True. Rather than to do with science fiction, science fiction up. criticism. There's a, there's, there's a reasonable... She, she doesn't try to co-opt other critical attitudes, but there's a very reasonable representation of Tiptree's uh, reputation in science fiction well, in that book. I'm not saying that there isn't. I'm saying she what makes the book of interest... Scholarship. What I'm saying is that what makes the book of interest is completely separate to that. Okay. <laughs> That's Okay, look, I realize it's very cruel to sit here and argue with a Pilgrim Award-winning science fiction scholar that science fiction scholarship is of niche interest. But it's of niche interest, absolutely, and of minimal impact on the science, field. Science fiction scholarship is, first of all, scholarship is a niche interest. Science fiction is a niche interest. So, by almost mathematical definition, science fiction scholarship is going to be a niche within a niche. <laughs> and jazz scholarship is the same way, by the way. <laughs> well, actually, the difference there is, is more people real. read that. I don't think so. Uh, you don't think more people are going to read a biography of John Coltrane than are going to read a biography of um, Frederick Paul? The biography of John Coltrane is going to be like the Julie Phillips biography. It's going to be uh, there. There are best-selling jazz memoirs. There's Chet Baker. There's a, there's Don Cheadle's doing a movie on Miles Davis now. They're public performers, so it's a little bit different. If you look at the scholarly history of jazz, the Gunther Schuller books, the John Lickweiler books that actually deal with the musicology of jazz, they're read by a fairly limited number of other scholars in the field. Look, I should clarify my own attitude because we've circled around. I think science fiction criticism is interesting. I think science fiction journalism is interesting. I've, when I've encountered it, I've found science fiction, academic science fiction commentary and criticism to be very dry and abstract. Uh, not without value, but not particularly, you know, Mainstream, um, and it's fine. I mean, it's it's it's, it's edge case, Gary. Well, one of the things that prompted David Hartwell to start the New York Review of Science Fiction was exactly that feeling. He felt that the sort of energetic fan based slash scholar based research into science fiction uh, was missing. He thought he saw some of it in Locus, but he wanted to create a journal that. Uh, that, that sort of revitalized that kind of thing. Unfortunately, that journal also published its fair fair amount of fairly dry academic scholarship as well. Uh, yeah, the nature of... Yeah, don't get me started on the New York Science Fiction. Good don't get me started on the NYRSF. Well, okay, but here's a good example. There are researchers, sometimes fan researchers, sometimes university-based researchers, that do work that nobody else will do. There was a long... There, I'll cite two NERSF articles... Uh, one was an article about Edward Whittemore, uh, the, the strange writer who did that series of uh, Middle Eastern novels like Jerusalem Poker, yep, which yep. in retrospect... Okay, that was very useful. I learned a lot about that person. There was also a long article, and I unfortunately can't remember the author of this one either, uh, which traced the career of Groff Conklin, uh, which fascinated me because Groff Conklin is, is one of the editors who completely shaped my view of science fiction when I was a kid. And very little seemed to be known about him, and this person had dug up what there was to find out. Yep. Look, so, there's no doubt some of it's interesting, and it ends up in, in, in little places, and in, sorry, not in little places, in nooks and crannies, enriching our understanding of things. You know, there are yeah. aspects of research that ends up, say, in an SF encyclopedia biography of something, and you go, oh, I didn't know so-and-so did that. Or you stumble across things, like when we interviewed, or, well, interviewed, when we had Greg, Glenn Cook on the podcast. And you find out that he lived with with Fritz Leiber and all that sort of thing. 
all kinds of interesting things that, that uh, percolate up through through the discussion. But I stand by my core point anyway. It's just that most people don't read it. And doesn't have much influence. Speaking of Fritz, we probably, probably should acknowledge that apparently Justin Lieber died recently. He did very sadly, just last week, I think. Who, yes. who had written two very interesting novels. Well, one very interesting novel and its sequel. Is that too mean to put it that way? Uh, beyond, can't remember the titles right now. I, I don't um, know, Gary. I mean, I'll, but, I, uh, but he was somebody who had a very interesting background and uh, a very interesting relationship with his father, which I witnessed at one point. I mean, yeah, I mean, he wrote a couple of books, what, Beyond Rejection and Beyond Humanity and Beyond, Beyond Gravity. Rejection. yeah, right. I think he wrote, uh, I think he wrote five or six uh, novels and died in his late 70s, which goes to show you how much time has passed with everything, Gary. We had the point well, where the son, the son of some of the children. Fitzmaier's son was, in, was that old, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah but you, you get to the point where the generation after the, the founders of everything are, are passing away. I think, wow, it's, science fiction's getting a little bit old. I mean, this will roll onto something else, but also, also it's why you get to see the spate of, and this is actually interesting, the spate of Lovecraft influenced books that come out, that are coming out this year as opposed to any other year. That's interesting. And that's something we have to come back to later in the year, but I'll explain right now why, if I can. Uh, why? So what? Why? Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. First of all, there th I've seen three, what I think are major Lovecraft books come out this year. Lovecraft Country by Tom Ruff, uh, Matt Ruff came out just recently. Victor LaSalle's, um, The Ballad of Black Tom, I think it is, came out quite recently. And in August, uh, Tor.com will publish The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow by Kids Johnson. All, both, all of which bounce off Lovecraft stories and open them up in a different way. Now, there's nothing new about writing it's in, in Lovecraft influenced fiction. There's nothing new about bouncing off Lovecraft, but all three of these works are, I think, looking to open it up in a somewhat new way and are at a very high level. And actually, the, the two things they show, I think, are how interesting it is to see how work can be turned over in, in, in the creative imagination invented and in, in, in turned into something new in the future. And, as a controversial sidebar, the value of having copyright actually expire you know, um, that's true, I suppose, and that certainly was an issue with uh, with with Arthur Conan Doyle a few years ago. Yeah, uh, but I think to get back, uh, just to connect this in a really annoying way to our previous discussion. Yeah, this is an act of scholarship. This is an act of criticism. <laughs> I mean, these are not Lovecraft. These these these, these are not uh, Lovecraft pastiches. There are anthology. There's anthology after anthology of people doing Lovecraft. It's frankly not hard for a reasonably talented prose writer to do Lovecraft. Mm. People have done that. And sometimes people have done it better than some of the originals. These are critical works about Lovecraft. These are turning Lovecraft over, as you say, and saying, what can we make of him? What, is, what can we do with Lovecraft now other than slavishly imitate him? So uh, hang on. Are you trying to tell me that? A work of fiction that reinterprets and just talks to a preceding work is itself an academic work of criticism. I didn't say academic, but it certainly is a work of criticism. It certainly is a critical fiction in the way that a good chunk of what Harry Harrison wrote during his career was critical fiction. He was going after uh, Edmund Hamilton and to some extent Heinlein. Uh, there is... A little library, I'm, I'm, I'm actually paraphrasing something Chip Delaney said to me years ago, because there's a whole little library of books, including Delaney's Nova and including The Forever War, that are responses to Starship Troopers. Uh, Starship Troopers created a whole subgenre of critical science fiction that rethought space opera in different ways, uh, and not necessarily in Heinleinian ways either. So, yeah, I think that kind of thing does happen. I think that when... Uh, Le Guin writes The Dispossessed as a kind of critical utopia, and Delaney comes back and writes Triton. Uh, the, these are books that are in critical dialogue with each other and with a tradition. And Lovecraft is ripe and, frankly, overdue for that kind of thing. But see, when, when uh, Greg, Bear, Greg Bear writes a long critical fiction, The City at the End of the, the World, um, which is a 
riff on, on William Hope Hodgson. I think this is where we lose out when large media entities start protecting copyright too zealously. I mean, Tolkien should begin to start falling out of copyright soon. But it won't. Uh-huh. It'll be stretched for half our lifetimes. No. You watch. Now, on one hand, if that protects us from... Well, not even protect us. Who cares? Endless um, pseudo kind of sequels to The Lord of the Rings, then, hey, part of me goes, yay. But, you know, the other part of me goes... There are all kinds of interesting works that could interact. I mean, many years ago, I read a, to my knowledge, still unpublished Adam Roberts novella called Rings, which riffed off Lord yeah. of the Rings very heavily. It was going to be published by PS Publishing more than a decade ago, and they ultimately decided not to proceed with it. But that was for copyright reasons, and I think it was an interesting commentary. It was an interesting commentary at that time. And I think there are other things that could have been done that would have been interesting commentaries. And we lose those when copyright's protected too zealously, I think. It it may be true, but I think that protecting protecting the Tolkien legacy from just random... uh, Revenants, for example, you're going to have, you know, let's, let's, let's rewrite the entire Lord of the Rings from the point of view of a Balrog. Uh, let's, 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 let's have a sympathetic backstory for the orcs and have, show how they had bad childhoods. That's not what we're talking about. And, and I'm sure this is true of the Adam Roberts thing. I'm certain it's going to be true of the Kids Roberts thing. These are comments on these works. They are critical fictions in that sense. They're not simply let's extend this to see how much more money we can make out of it. This is not the, you know, God, as, as the National Lampoon once put it in a parody title, God help us another sequel to Dune or something along those lines. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't. Um, and, and look, I'm sure... So, look, and, and, no, there's a difference between exploiting a work of fiction and entering into dialogue with that work of fiction, or entering agree. into a critical dialogue with that work of fiction, which is exactly what Victor Laval does, by the way, in The Ballad of Black Tom. And what I'm saying that uh, Matt Ruff does and what Kids Johnson does very much. Now, I honestly am not enough of a Lovecraft reader to know how much other fiction like this has been written. I wonder, and this is germane, and it only takes us off our track a little bit, I wonder how much of what's changed has been, uh, or what's happening with the, in Love, the Lovecraft area with these three works, is riffing off the awards controversy that has been shared I, over I the last I five years. I wondered about that too, and I think one of the questions that that controversy raised was a question that writers need to think about. Lovecraft is enormously important uh, and enormously influential on a lot of writers, and enormously problematical. So one of the questions that sort of churned around after that controversy was, how do we handle Lovecraft now? What do we do with Lovecraft as an influence? Uh, and there's there's obviously a great deal of affection for Lovecraft among a good, sizable portion of the readership, but there are problems as well. And I, I think to some extent what we might be seeing now, and I go back to Harry Harrison with Build a Galactic Hero, or for that matter, much of what became the new space opera, a lot of that was turning over these really kind of awful old Doc Smith and Edmund Hamilton star-smashing stories and figuring out how do we preserve what we love in this and make some kind of literary sense out of it in the modern world. It's true. It's true. And I, I think it'll continue. I mean, i got to say, I hope that the, the, the World Fantasy Awards can find themselves out of the tailspin they're in at the moment, and I hope that the World Fantasy Convention can too. But it's certainly been, if, if it was, if that discussion, if that controversy and everything else helped inspire the work we're seeing now, well, then I think that's valuable. Uh, that's probably true. I, I, I think that by and large, having these discussions uh, is a healthy kind of thing. Uh, you, you, you know, there are people who object to the name Hugo Gernsback, but to some extent, Gernsback has long been part of that same process of critical rediscovery. I mean, the in some ways, the definitive Gernsback critical story is Gibson's The Gernsback Continuum, which is exactly that. It's looking at this bizarre, irrational dream of the future and figuring out what happened to it, and is there any part of it that can be reclaimed, or is it really kind of a, a dangerous psychic trap that you find yourself in. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if somebody's doing that for epic fantasy or if I've just, if it's happened and I just haven't noticed it. 
You know, it's not something know. I'm giving I mean, any thought well, to. This is me just riffing off the top of my head. I might put the podcast up tomorrow or something and then go, hang on, I should have thought about such and such. And certainly we've had the commercial riff-offs of Epic Fantasy, without a doubt, in vast numbers. And it wouldn't surprise me to find out that a series by Kate Elliott or a series by somebody else has done exactly this, and I just haven't seen it. But And I'd appreciate hearing about those if they exist. Uh, but they don't come immediately to my mind. It could very well be. But, I mean, the, what we're getting at is... Um, is a is a very interesting and very large question of how contemporary writers respond to earlier writers, either with affection or with a great deal of skepticism. And we mentioned Fritz Leiber earlier, and in several podcasts we've talked about how writers from Terry Pratchett to Michael Swanwick have uh, to to China Mieville have have pointedly played with Fritz Leiber ideas, um, usually with a great deal of of of, of, of affection. Uh, Lovecraft is a little bit more problematical. Obviously, when you get into um, writers like Edmund Hamilton, you get in problematical. And if you, I don't know if anybody has done anything with L. Ron Hubbard. I I only know two or three people who've actually read all of those books, all the Decology. But is there anything really to say about those that about about you Hubbard? Can say in fiction? I don't know. And also, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you end up having to write a Vonnegut kind of satire in order to do it. And then are, are you riffing off the biography of L. Ron Hubbard more than you're riffing off his fiction? That's probably true. That's probably actually the case. You know, and, um, sorry. And we were going to get to the big book of science fiction. Are we going to get to that? Well, we're going to get to the question of anthologies because I think the question we raised about awards which is that how do you define science fiction with one award, is a similar question to how do you define science fiction with one anthology. Yes. I and mean, guys like you, guys like you can, can sort of avoid the issue because you'll say, okay, I'm only going to look at drowned worlds. That's, that's, um, that's a narrow thing. Or I'm only going to look at last year. What if you had to set out and say, I'm going to represent all of science fiction, which is what Jeff and Ann Vandermeer have set yeah. out to do with this 1200 Well, hang on, hang on. Page. First of all, let, let's give con, uh, a little context. We're sitting here in mid, early, mid-April, or roughly mid-April, and in mid-July, okay. um, I think it's Vintage, are going to publish a 1,200-page book edited by uh, Anne and Jeff Vandermeer entitled The Big Book of Science Fiction, and that's important that that's the name of it, right? Yeah. Uh, first up, that's the first thing. Uh, and it's important because I think it, it, it talks to probable intent, I have not seen any of the interstitial material in the book, by that I mean the introduction of the story notes, the right. the stuff that the anthologist injects in around their story selections to give you context and to explain what they're attempting to do. But if you like, I look at the big book of science fiction, and I think, first of all, it is a both a literally and a metaphorically staggering thing to attempt. Uh, by that I mean it's a 1,200-page book, it's going to weigh pounds, it's going to be heavy. But also, yeah. you know, they've made a conscientious, a conscientious attempt, it looks like, and I absolutely believe, to read as broadly internationally as they can and to, to bring back a big book of science fiction. Now, if you like, the mm-hmm. active definition that might be happening here is what is or what is not science fiction. And I don't know if they've concerned themselves with that. I half suspect they've not, and I certainly would not if I were them. I would run screaming from the, 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 the task that you are outlining as an anthologist. I think it is a thankless and possibly pointless task. Oh, well, I think it is, too, and I am I, assuming they're not spending any amount of time doing that. You, what they are doing is making an argument as to what ought or ought not to be included in this sort of cloud of, of, of science fiction, this cloud of unknowing. I mean, you can put together almost that large an anthology. I'm thinking of, of, of David Hartwell and Catherine Kramer's Ascent of Wonder, which came in at something like, a thousand pages, which was essentially an extended argument to broaden the definition of hard science fiction to include almost anything they liked. Well, okay. Um, the, the, one, of the, one of the things that started this conversation for listeners is I, I was playing around on Google because I like playing around in Google. And I thought, has there been another anthology titled The Big Book of Science Fiction? And certainly there mm-hmm. has, right? In 1950, Groff Cronklin edited a 541-page book called The Big Book of Science Fiction. I've not seen the story notes at all. Most of the stories come from Astounding. They're almost exclusively North American. They cover a period about 1889 to 1950. 
So it's about a 50-year period, 60-year mm-hmm. period. Uh, the 32 stories that are picked, and there's nothing especially wrong with the selections, though, as you would half expect, they are not overly familiar with any women. They introduced me to science fiction writers I've right. never heard of before in my life. Are you a big reader of right. Voldemar Camphert, Gary? Uh, not a name that comes to mind. No. Voldemort is actually well known for, for his non, better known for his nonfiction and is involved in, uh, the Chicago Museum of Science or something. Oh, um, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. One of, he was the founding curator of it, I believe. Was Voldemort? Voldemort? And he had a short story come out in 1918 called The Diminishing Draft. And I confess I've not read it. But the reason that the big book of science fiction in 1950 caught my attention compared to the big book of science fiction in 2016 is this. There's the first is that the contemporary book, the Vandermeer's book, is three times the length. So, so sorry, three times, yeah. it's two and a half times the length, three times the number of stories. And it overtly attempts, and I think it's fair to say overtly for various reasons, for a reason I'll touch on in a minute, it overtly attempts to bring the rest of the world into the discussion. It brings women into the discussion in a way that they do not appear mm-hmm. in the earlier, um, Cronklin book. It, Brings people from all around the country, all around the world. Now, I say that because they've reproduced the table of contents uh, for the Vandermeer's book, and it deliberately includes in the in, in, on the table of contents what country those stories came came from, whether they're Japanese or Mexican or French or Norwegian. Right. Uh, and I'm just thinking about that act of act of scholarship, and that's that, that's on IO9, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Oh, and, and, look, it takes a whole bunch of other places as well now, Gary. Actually, it's okay. all over the shop. So not just IO9. Uh, but they've gone to a great deal of trouble, which means, of course, they're also synopsizing. They're very, very clever, very skilled anthologists, these two. Uh, and they are uh-huh. very conscientious. I've got a staggering amount of respect for what they've done here. But I think even they would, well, I suspect, even they would say, they're not really attempting to define science fiction in this book. Here is a great, here is probably, I don't know what the earliest story here is. It looks, in fact, like it might even pick up from, well, no, it goes back to 1918, certainly. So from, from the last hundred years of science fiction, here's some great stuff from around the world. And in some ways, I think that's enough. No, I think that's what they're saying, yeah. Uh, and, and I think there, there, there are two ways of looking at it. One is they want to go back and look at the 20th century in science fiction. It's, it's mostly the 20th century. I think they pick up a, an H.G. Wells story from the late 1890s. There's an Alfred Jarry story, who's somebody mm-hmm. who's never thought of as part of science fiction, although he was certainly an influence on, on the new wave uh, because Ballard wrote uh, Alfred Jarry uh, pastiches. But what they're trying to do is look at that century and say, let's look at it now from a 21st century perspective and see what was going on in the century that now looks like science fiction. What Groff Conklin was doing in 1950 was looking at a handful of American magazines, basically. Oh, sure, sure. And, and this is... That, this that was what science fiction was. I, I really want to say that what I just said is not intended as a criticism of Cronklin at all, not even a little bit. What's intended is simply an observation about how things have changed. Well, things have changed in the in a good way. Yeah. Things have changed by opening up. I mean, science fiction, uh, the fact that for 50 years, the first 50 years of science fiction's history in the United States, you could have looked at three or four different magazines and pretty much represented what everybody thought of as science fiction. Yeah. I think the Vandermeers are saying, you can look back at that same period now, but you can no longer represent the field with that narrow range of sources. Uh, that there was science fiction going on in other countries, there was science fiction going on in other literary venues, there was science fiction going on that didn't call itself science fiction. Um, I, I, it's a very clever anthology. When I looked at the table of contents, which I only did very briefly, it struck me that there were three, really three kinds of stories um, not, apart from the international, one was there are there's a fairly good representation of of classics that anybody who's a science fiction reader would recognize as classics. There are stories by Delaney and and, and Le Guin and Russ and uh, and Clifford Simak and Theodore Sturgeon and Ray Bradbury, uh, and people will look at that and feel comfortable. That's <coughs> and that's what they always thought of as science fiction. There's a second group of stories by writers that you recognize and respect. But maybe not by those particular stories. Uh, I think there was a Gene Wolfe story in it that wasn't the most familiar. In other words, they've, they've gone beyond the most obvious selections for a number of writers. And the third category for most science fiction readers are going to be names that you either don't know at all <coughs> or that you've only 
come across in passing, which is most of the international names and a few of the literary names, the Angelica Garadishers, for example, or the Alfred Jarees. What I like best about this book, the book Gary, in many ways, I think, is that, <coughs> first of all, there's a lot of translations in it, and, yeah. new, and new translations, and which actually generally for awards consideration count as new stories, believe it or not. Yes. And so, uh, for example, Yoshio Aramaki's Soft Clocks, I think, may actually can't be eligible for the Hugo next year. It's just kind of surreal. Really? I've got a funny feeling that happens with translations. That's for somebody else to decide. But but what I like as well about this, what I love about this book, uh, is that I could argue every single story selection. I could disagree with every story selection just about here and not say that they've made the wrong choice, because <laughs> I don't think they have made the wrong choices, but come up with other ones that could fill the same gap. And what that tells me is, first of all, that they've really thought about what they're putting in, in They've balanced it really well, uh-huh. and that it fits into a very robust argument. I mean, there's something particularly solid about a table of contents when you can come up with alternates and still have to allow the choice that ma- that's been made is a good one. You know, are you choosing? Look, yeah. Let's look, look look at your nearest hotel by William Gibson. Terrific story. Is it the best of William mm-hmm. Gibson short stories? I don't know. I might have picked something different. Uh, but I can see why you choose Neuro's Hotel. I can absolutely see. I can see why you choose The Universe of Things by Gwyneth Jones. I can see why you choose 900 Grandmothers uh, by Lafferty, yeah. you know, and so on and so forth. Sand Kings by George Martin, um, even if it's not necessarily his most overtly science fictional story. So, I mean, look, it's, it's interesting. And they also, and this is something that you and I were talking about, they've been very open, and I think it's a good thing they've been very open about it, that they've also been faced by the practical realities of anthology making. I mean, you and I have talked about it often before. It, and so our oh, yeah. listeners already know this, so really we're boring them stupid as we get towards the end of our hour. But, you know, they've said, they could, for example, they couldn't get Robert Heinlein for this book, but they would have if they could have. And mm-hmm. I guess superficially, I mean, I've heard too often people say, you know, this book is no, you know, no good because it over, it omits X, Y, or Z. And you're going, well, you know, look, there's, there's a, di- okay. There's a difference between doing what, the, what, what Hartwell and Kramer did in the science fiction century. I think it was yeah. the science fiction century where they made a structural error, in my opinion. And it's what makes that a bad book. Uh, they averted, they omitted Heinlein, Clark, and Asimov because they thought they're over anthologized. I think that's yeah, a that was bad bizarre. mistake. That was a mistake, right. Um, the Vandermeers were not legally able to do it, which is unfortunate because, you know, I think it's an error on behalf of the literary estate to omit works from these, this kind of context. Heinlein certainly does be- belong here, but wasn't able to be here for that reason. So I think it's important to acknowledge for, um, uh, for, for the, the Vandermeers that, you know, they've done it. I'm going to be fascinated to see what the discussion is of the big book of science fiction when it comes out in July. And maybe we should make a point of having Jeff and Anne on the podcast to talk about it and to see what they're actually doing so that um, we have some idea of how they feel about it. Because the last thing I would ever want to do is to try and put words in their mouth. But, I mean, I think they have solidly scored some major major anthologies over the last, you know, decade oh, or so. And so, certainly, I mean, the, 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 the landmark one does appear to be, you know, you know the, the big weird anthology that they did, you know, The Weird. And it'll be interesting to see if this stands the same way. I mean, it's interesting that I can't think of a major historical anthology of science fiction after Silverberg's The Science Fiction Hall of Fame in 1967 that's had the same life and influence as that book has for the following well, period. No, and there have been a bunch of them, but none of them had that thing. And you've lost your microphone. I mean, you're, you're, you're to get back to the academic world, for a long time, Jim Gunn's four-volume Road to Science Fiction was was used as a textbook uh, in classes. And it was pretty good. It, it came back in and out of print. There was the Wesleyan Anthology a few years ago, which is a good anthology. And the only one that actually, I think, rivals the Vandermeers for size was a textbook anthology that Heather Mosry did a few years ago called Science Fiction Context, Stories in Context. that ran, ran to over 1,200 pages, but it included a lot of critical material in addition to the, the stories. Uh, so is there a standard science fiction anthology now that people turn to? The Science Fiction Hall of Fame is only 20 years after that Groff Conklin anthology you're talking about. It's, it covers essentially the first half of the 20th century, and that's it. Uh, so you've got most of the history of science fiction to represent after that. The, the gun anthologies, I think, came out in the 70s. So no, there isn't a standard anthology of science fiction 
around today the way, for example, the Healy and McComas Adventures in Time and Space was the standard anthology of science fiction for about 20 years. Uh, but then it died out because it represented basically astounding in the 1940s. If the Silverberg book, which remains in print and has been constantly in print since it first appeared, mm -hmm. and which is staggeringly influential as an anthology, I would have to say, if it neatly represents the first 50 years of North American science fiction, which it kind of does in a way, yeah. uh, is it possible to do that for the next 50 years? And the answer, in my opinion, is it's not. That there will I never agree. be a book that will be able to do that. And the reason for that is science. the fundamental, na fundamental nature of science fiction publishing changed at around that time. You know, it appears, I mean, my, my understanding is that the purpose of the Hall of Fame was to produce a book that brought together best stories voted by the SF Hall of Fame, sorry, the SFWA members, Science Writers of America members, right. and at that time it was SFWA, not SFWA, and to represent that period before the nebulas came along. So it's the pre-nebula, the best of the pre-nebulas, right? Mm. That's where it picks up and where it, where it ends. Um, that's also the time when the magazine industry rose and fell. It was, you know, sort of magazine publishing as the core of science fiction was done by the late, by the 50, late 50s probably, earlier. And so that's not how things are now. The role of novels as overwhelmed science fiction enormously, short fiction enormously. So, you know, you just physically can't do it. A book like The Vandermeers, though, is a little bit of a, of, of a counter to that. It does give you a picture, an image, a cross-section. And I think, and it would be interesting to talk to Jack, uh, Jeff and Anne about this, I think mm. you find that they're attempting to synopsize a broader thing with representative works. You know, I suspect they're trying to synopsize broader trends in science fiction itself, including what you see in novels, with some of the things that appear here. So I think it, that's true. So, you know, and I th I look, I look forward to, I'm going to be honest, I'm never going to read this book, but I'm certainly going to buy a copy and read the introduction. Uh, largely because I don't have time to read 1,200 pages of reprint short well, stories. 1,200 pages of stories. Good many of which you know well, I suspect. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. And some of them from my absolute favorite period of, of science fiction, so I know them backwards. Um, mm. so, so look, yes. But I, actually, I tell a lie. The one thing I will do is I will go through and I'll certainly read all of the translated works. And I'll buy it for that reason. Yeah. Um, I'm and fascinated I think that's by valuable. That. I mean, it's, it, there's no doubt it's a valuable and it's, it's a useful book and it, it's one that, that we should all look at. And they should be credited. But I think one of the things that comes up again, since we keep circling back to academia somehow, that anybody who's ever taught a science fiction course realizes now in 2016, you can't really represent science fiction solely by short fiction. It's essentially become a novel form with, uh, with a substantial, healthy short fiction uh, component to it. But, but, but essentially, it's no longer run by short fiction the way it was for the first half of the 20th century. Oh, without, without doubt. Certainly, if you, if you were to put a pin in, say, 1970, from there on, the, the, the influence of short fiction has fallen, and that's a random date, you could put it earlier, probably, but from, say, 1970, yeah. it's, it's kind of fallen while the rise of the novel has overwhelmingly come to dominate. There's no doubt. I still think short fiction has a great value. I think it's a flaw in the Dragon Awards we talked about at the beginning of this discussion that they don't address right. short fiction, though that's, that's their affair. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think we should probably wind up by saying maybe we'll make a point of getting Anne and Jeff on to talk about this book. I mean, we've got a lot to talk about and a lot to do. Um, and I know we're going to be talking about, on the round table, our, our separate podcast, we're going to be talking about Paul McCauley at the end of the month. So we're going to have and to keep we'll us busy, Gary. To, and we need to do a podcast where we talk a little bit more about this Lovecraft issue since uh, we well, know yeah, I, the kids I think, is coming up with something. Yeah, I, I think certainly uh, perhaps closer to the publication of the DreamQuest developed bow, which will be, I believe, launched at Worldcon in Kansas City. Uh, we should maybe see if we can get Victor and, and Kidge on the podcast and have a good long conversation with them. I think that would be fun. Would be, absolutely. Well, and until then, I guess. We should wind up. We should go on. Like, who knows? Maybe we'll be back next week. Maybe we'll be distracted. I don't know, listeners. You know, you're sort of, there's, there's, there seems to be a, a solid 1500 of you every week and then sometimes more, sometimes less. 
Um, we will probably be back. We will certainly be, well, I guess in a, certainly the next few weeks we'll be sitting down to talk about the Hugo Awards because the nominations will come out and we'll get to mm-hmm. talk about why the fact that they didn't just photocopy yours and mine ballots and go with that was a mistake because we knew what should have won, obviously. That's absolutely certainly true. We'll get to see whether the Coot Street podcast gets onto the ballot. Mm-hmm. Probably won't. We'll see. We'll see. And other things. I mean, I'm, my main thing is I'm rooting for Aurora by Stan Robinson to be there. I'm nervous about that. I don't think it will make it, but I'm, I'm hopeful. There are a few novels that I'm curious to see if they make it. I, I'm curious to see if Paolo Bacicalupi's The Water Knife will make it, because I don't think it will. No. And look, and there's, actually, more and more I come to realize the greatest flaw in my 2015 reading, and something I need to address, though it's hard to get a copy of this book here, uh, is uh, Nora Jemison's The Fifth Season. Yeah. Which I didn't read last year, and it looks like that was a major mistake. It seems to, yeah. Well, we have a lot of interesting things coming out this year, and we need to start spending some time talking about new books as well. Okay. Well, we shall maybe do that another week. But for now, I think we're at the end of our time, and we shall wind up, and we shall say farewell, and we shall talk to each other another week. <coughs> talk to talk to you soon. Okay. Farewell for now. The Good Street Podcast.